You're listening to The Advocast, presented and produced by the Advocates for Human Rights. March 8, 2022 was International Women's Day. Officially held for the first time by the United Nations in 1975, this annual day recognizes and celebrates the charge women and girls have led to overcome barriers and secure brighter futures. It is both a day of remembrance and a reminder of the importance of unity amongst advocates for women's rights as we strive to realize the goal of a more equitable, just world for current and future generations. This episode features a recording of our event in honor of IWD. In this episode, you'll learn how the Advocates works on multiple levels to advance women's human rights, including how we secure asylum for women fleeing domestic abuse, how we hold countries accountable for protecting women from violence, and how we empower women's rights defenders to change the world for good. Hi, everyone. Thank you for being with us today. My name is Karen Evans, and I am the chair of the board of the Advocates for Human Rights. Welcome to our celebration of International Women's Day. You will hear tonight about some of the ways that the Advocates is working to protect women's rights. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce our moderator for the evening, Filiberto Nolasco Gomez. Filiberto is a labor organizer, an investigative journalist, an editor, and a new board member of the Advocates for Human Rights. Welcome, Filiberto. Hey, thank you, Karen. And good evening, everyone. My name is Filiberto. As Karen mentioned, I've been a, a recent board member, and in, but I've been around advocates for a long time, doing a lot of advocacy around uh, women's rights, primarily through being an expert witness, uh, focusing on Guatemala. Along with that, uh, earlier this year, as we were planning and thinking about uh, our arc of work for the year, uh, there was a landmark court decision in Guatemala where five paramilitaries were prosecuted for the rape of uh, indigenous women during the Civil War. Now, this justice comes 40 years after the actual events, and so it's it certainly speaks to the limitations and the opportunities to further advocacy around uh, the rights of women around the world. And so that's what we're going to focus on tonight. One of the things that I found out as a board member is while I've been around advocates for years doing human rights work and expert witness work, even for me, the scope of work that advocates does is dense and complicated and wide. And so really what we want to do with this in this panel is both speak to the work that advocates does on behalf of women throughout the world, but also think about the opportunities and the steps forward uh, as we continue to see devastation around the planet. Advocates for Human Rights is one of the only human rights organizations that fuse our expertise serving individual women seeking safety, working within countries' civil society groups to change laws, systems, and advocating at the international scale at the United Nations to put pressure on governments to implement international human rights standards. So we work all the way from the ground up to the UN. And I think you're going to see and experience the full scope of what that means and the insight that it gives us. Tonight, we will highlight the complementary roles of different human rights mechanisms that can be utilized how one woman obtains safety, how the government of one country can be held accountable, and how women's rights defenders can change the world for good. All right, so I'm gonna introduce Sarah Brennis. She's the Director of Refugee and Immigrants Rights uh, Program. And we'll talk about how the, how the Advocates works with individual women fleeing gender-based violence and seeking asylum in the United States. Thanks so much, Federico. So representation of individuals seeking asylum is one of the core aspects of the work at the Advocates for Human Rights. It's one of our first programs that we established when the Advocates was founded. As lawyers, we've acquired special skills that allow us to navigate the complex labyrinth of rules 
that may lead clients to humanitarian protection here in the United States through asylum and other similar humanitarian relief. You know, we're just one tool in the toolbox that clients tap into on their journey to safety. And for, for clients who've survived gender-based violence, this could be no truer. I'm gonna give just a couple examples of a, of a few women we've had the privilege of working with um, that really have exemplified this. One client, Ms. B, contacted our office several years ago asking for representation in her asylum claim. At the age of 15, she found herself in a relationship with a much older man. And for decades, she managed to survive the abuse by her partner while she was living in Central America. His blows sent her to the hospital multiple times and in one instance resulted in a miscarriage of her unborn child. She sought help from police there, but she was simply sent home, told that domestic violence is a family issue and not something the courts would take up. She bore the weight of the dehumanizing insults, the debilitating blows, and the manipulating persuasion because she saw no way out. And in fact, she had three children by this man and initially thought that she was being strong for her children by putting up with the abuse, keeping it a secret from her family. She eventually confided in a female friend at work who told her, you've got to find a way to get out of the circle and eventually made her way to the United States. Other women that she met in the U.S. helped her find legal and psychological help to reestablish her confidence and her love for herself. I talked with her yesterday um, and asked her about where she found this strength in order to survive. She spent years separated from her children um, and she named a number of different women that she encountered along the way that guided her to find strength to continue forward, to find patience and, and really talked about really a, a long path that she took where she didn't trust anyone. And it's, it's, it's a bit ironic because last summer, and this was even before her case was ultimately granted, we were uh, doing some outreach in, in greater Minnesota and, and she's, she lives in, in central Minnesota now. Um, and we were going to visit her for a meeting related to her case to talk about her, her case and add some things for her affidavit. And she said, well, I've, I've got a few friends here uh, at my house. And in fact, um, her small uh, home was filled with a number of families who had recently arrived from the border that were from the country where she was from that was now experiencing significant political oppression to uh, opposition groups. And, and she stood there in complete confidence with all of these folks and advocated for them and told them to trust themselves, trust what had happened to them and, and trust us at the advocates and, and the volunteers that we work with to, to work on their cases. And it was it was a, a complete turnaround and, and really testament to her finding strength in herself, um, finding strength in in the tools that she could rely on here, the, the mental health providers that assisted her and us at the advocates and the volunteers that that worked on her case. She came to us over five years ago. So it took a lot of of patience and persistence um, to finally receive a grant of asylum and be able to be reunited with her children. Another example I'll give is um, really a, a bit of a transition to our, our, our next work. And one of the things that I have found a lot of pride in, in the work we do here at the Advocates and in connecting clients with um, our international advocacy. And, and this was a, a situation where 
um, we had gotten a referral from a legal clinic that was working in Texas, and they had met with a woman who had arrived at the U.S. border and had had a negative credible fear interview. It's a it's a mini interview that individuals have at the border if they claim a fear of returning to their country. And she wasn't initially successful, but she was able to appeal the case to an immigration judge. She did so, got help from this legal clinic. And then the judge reversed that negative decision. So she was allowed to come into the United States and apply for the full protection of asylum. Um, and so this clinic referred her case to us and, and she came in and she brought all of her paperwork with her that she presented to the judge in order to get the chance to seek asylum. And among the papers were one of the reports that the advocates did to one of the human rights bodies at the United Nations. And so to see that come full circle and see um, that this individual that we are now going to represent, um, our organization more broadly, uh, was able to use its international advocacy and, and, and really kind of coming full circle was, was, was exciting, exciting to see. Well, thank you, Sarah. Uh, I think you're really evidence one of the challenging components of doing this work is that we always sit between despair and joy and sort of alternate between or feel both at the same time. And, you know, it's heavy. It's heavy doing this work. All right. Uh, next up is Jennifer Prestholt. She's the director of our international justice program. And she'll now tell us how the advocates works with partners in other countries to document the human rights violations experienced by individuals and bring their voices and recommendations for, for change to the attention of the international community through advocacy of the UN human rights mechanisms. So I'll take it from there and say thank you, um, Filiberto, and also thanks to Sarah. Sarah really illustrated so um, powerfully the importance of the work that we do um, to represent individuals um, and to provide safety to women like, um, like the clients that she described. I am going to take it out a, you know, I don't know how many, a million miles um, and talk about how, um, how we change the human rights conditions that force our clients to flee and how things kind of come full circle. And that's through our international advocacy at the United Nations and also at the regional human rights mechanisms like the African Commission on Human and People's Rights. Um, international advocacy is really a, a powerful tool. We use it to amplify, amplify the voices of our human rights partners um, in other countries and also to give space to um, the voices of our clients about to talk about their experiences. And bringing the facts about the human rights conditions and recommendations for changes that address those problems to the international community can, can really be a powerful tool to push governments to uphold their responsibilities to protect human rights. So you can kind of think about it as a, as a pressure cooker where you've got the international community putting pressure from the top and then our human rights defender partners putting pressure from the grassroots up. And it really results in change. So I'm gonna give you just a couple of examples. The first is just a couple of, of examples of, of advocacy at the UN Human Rights Council. The Human Rights Council is, the, is a political human rights body. Its major mechanism is something called the Universal Periodic Review Process or UPR, which is, you can sort of imagine um, a peer review of 196 other countries um, in, in the world. So every four and a, and a half years or so, Every single country that is a member of the United Nations has to report about their human rights record to other countries, and those other countries make recommendations to improve human rights. So our advocacy strategy is to encourage those Human Rights Council delegates to make our recommendations, and we really have seen an impact. For example, we regularly report on 
um, countries like Honduras and Ethiopia, countries where we have a lot of clients who have had to flee gender-based violence against women and girls um, and to seek asylum here. So you've heard Sarah's stories about those clients. Imagine how we take those stories with, used with consent, of course, um, but we take those stories of courageous clients and bring them up to the international community. And the impact is, um, is astounding, really. So in 2020, we participated in a report on Honduras um, and 39 countries urged a stronger response to violence against women in Honduras, up from 15 the previous UPR cycle about five years before. So that's a 160% increase in attention on, on the issue. Um, similarly, in Ethiopia, recommendations on violence against women to Ethiopia increased by 169.2% um, over the previous cycle, just, just five years before. And some countries really respond well to this kind of political pressure. So one example is after Croatia, UPR in 2015, the government was so embarrassed by the by the criticism and attention that the international community showered on them at this UPR process. Uh, they had decriminalized their domestic violence law, um, but they were so embarrassed by that attention that they quickly acted to make it to make it a crime again. And then similarly in Tunisia, we um, we did advocacy there as well around a law that allowed rapists to if to marry the uh, minor victim of, of their rape. So they would avoid prosecution if they married their victim. And so that law has been abolished as well. But my second example is about advocacy at the UN Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, or CEDA. So when a country ratifies a human rights treaty, they are basically opting in to being reviewed by um, independent experts at the UN for their compliance with that treaty. So it's different from that political peer pressure kind of, kind of process. If you have ratified the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, which the US is, is one of the very few countries in the world that has not, um, then you um, are agreeing to report every six years or so to the, to the committee. So I'm going to tell you the story of one country, and that country is Colombia. Um, I'm going to give you a very brief overview of our um, advocacy and work to change laws to better protect women in, in Colombia. Um, but Colombia, as many of you know, experienced a really brutal decades-long conflict with multiple violent and criminal actors. And after the 2016 peace agreement, demilitarization um, of all of these different groups really resulted in violence being brought into the homes um, as, as combatants came back to their home. So intimate partner violence is a huge problem in Cambodia um, with women experiencing really high rates of physical um, and, and psychological violence and really, really horrible and multiple forms of violence. So um, into our partners, and I will just call them our International Women's Day sheroes today, um, Dr. Greta Friedemann Sanchez from the University of Minnesota Humphrey School and Peggy Grieve, who is on our board and one of the host committee members. Um, in 2015, Greta and Peggy went to Columbia and conducted extensive research throughout the country to document the problem of of intimate partner violence and to really pinpoint the barriers to implementation of a law that was actually very good on the books, um, but the implementation was was terrible. So, and massive, massive problems with, with it. And one problem in particular was that the family commissioners, which were the local offices that were given the responsibility for issuing orders for protection, 
were so overburdened that um, as one family commissioner was quoted in their in their book that they published, um, the responsibilities hang on family commissioners like they hang on a Christmas tree. So they had so many responsibilities that they couldn't do the actual work of issuing the, the civil orders for, for protection. So Peggy and Greta identified a number of other problems as well, lack of resources, um, a really bizarre uh, mismatch of the number of family commissioner offices to the to the need, so like an inverse match to the to need and the um, availability of the offices. Mayors were given responsibility or authority to assign additional responsibilities, so they just kept piling them up on in some regions. But the bottom line is that women and girls were not getting the protection that they desperately needed in Colombia. Um, and it was an institutional structure that was just set up to, to fail women and girls. So it was our good luck that Colombia was due not only to report for the, for the UPR in 2018, and we did advocacy there, but they also reported to CEDA in 2019. So we took the, all of this research and recommendations for change, and we began our joint advocacy at the UN in Geneva. So we were there in February of, of 2019. And, um, you know, we start with a, a written report. So Sarah referenced the report um, that, that she saw used as documentation in one of the asylum, or in several asylum cases, we've seen it now. So taking that human rights documentation um, and then developing one-pager advocacy materials, doing briefings with members of the committee, and really sitting down to explain the problems. The results were, were incredible. So um, CEDA has a practice of, they name priority recommendations. So the country has to come back within two years and say ex specifically what they're doing um, on those priority recommendations. And two of the four priority recommendations directly addressed our issues. So I've never, I've been doing UN advocacy for a long time. I've never seen that, um, that level of, of um, success. Greta and Peggy continued their advocacy in Colombia. Um, they published a book and they did a lot of regulatory analysis um, and met with, with you know, people in different ministries in, in Colombia. But the legal amendment to this law that was good on the books but bad in implementation was submitted to Congress in July, on July 20th, 2020. So only a year, almost a year and a half from, um, from when we did our advocacy. And Law 2126 was issued on August 4th, 2021, and it amended the original law to address a lot of these problems. So um, the timing is significant because it did allow Colombia to go back to the UN and say, oh, look, we did make these changes um, within two years. But the changes are, uh, they removed the extra responsibilities that these family commissioners had prohibited mayors from adding more. Um, they increased the number of family commissioner offices to reflect the, to better reflect the need for services. Um, and then some institutional changes were made, including moving the family commissioner's offices under the Ministry of Justice instead of under the local um, executive um, executive mayor, mayoral offices. So we still have a lot of work to do, um, but since this is International Women's Day, I just want to take a moment to savor this success. And um, I would love to have you join me in a round of applause for Greta and Peggy and all of the other um, people in Colombia who have who made this huge, huge change possible. Thank you, Jennifer, for that overview and reminding us that we do have to celebrate our victories. There often feels like they're few and far between, but when they happen, we got to hold on to it, you know? 
All right. Now, up next is Rosalind Park, the director of the Women's Human Rights Program, to share what we are doing to support activists in Ukraine and empower our partners around the world. I'd like to begin by sharing a photo. This photo was taken in 2019 during my very last trip before the pandemic. I was training at our partner, the Feminist Intensive NGO, at their camp in the Carpathian Mountains in Ukraine. The partners traveled huge distances to get there. Some of them spent 17 hours on various trains just to arrive. And not all the trains in Ukraine were as comfortable as the TGV or the ICE. But these women, they are bright and they are committed to their causes. They are activists in their communities and they wanted to become better women's rights defenders. They showed up every day ready to learn, contribute to the discussions, and share their skills with one another. We spent an incredibly rewarding time together. So let me point out a few people to you. Helena and Marta is with our partner NGO Center Women's Perspectives. This is an NGO in Lviv that serves women victims of violence, and now they are serving internally displaced persons. Um, Helena and Marta are two of my favorite people in the world. They are amazing, they are committed, and they are effective. Next, we have Yulia, who's also in the red circle. She is a young woman who was 16 during the 2014 invasion. And we also have Diana, who is an internally displaced person. So I wanna talk a little bit more about Diana. Diana was one of the participants, the last one you just saw in that photo. Now, when I met her in the Carpathian Mountains, she told me that she was an internally displaced person from the 2014 invasion into Ukraine. She had not seen her parents for five years because she could not go back home. She had been on the front lines protesting the Russian invasion at that time. And because of that, she was forced to say goodbye to her home and her parents. She fled from Donetsk in order to stay alive. And she knew that she would be arrested and detained if she ever stepped foot in Donetsk again. So fast forward to 2022. Today, she finds herself once again under attack. She said goodbye to her new home and was sheltering in Mariupol for the time being. I heard from her on Friday and she sent me a message that she was escaping from Mariupol, which has suffered heavy major attacks. So once again, she is escaping from violence and war. Diana and her husband made it out safely, but just barely, just right before you guys started seeing it all across the news um, with the failure to create humanitarian corridors to let people escape. I next wanna talk about Alina. Alina also participated in the feminist intensive camp. And now she is sheltering with others in Kiev subway stations. She wants the world to know that she and many of her peers have taken up arms to defend their country now. This one, this is a photo of Elena's home. This is her attempt to protect her family from the shrapnel. Elena participated in our legal training academy for Russian speaking lawyers. And during this training, we taught the participants how to defend women's human rights at the highest levels in the world, just like Jennifer was talking about. For example, the European Court of Human Rights or the UN. We gave Olena the award for being the most punctual at our training. She was always on time, early in the morning, after coffee breaks, after lunch break. 
She was always there, the first one. Um, when I spoke to her last week, she was exhausted and she was demoralized. She had been sheltering all night while six rockets rained down on their shelter. Right now, many of these activists are just trying to survive. It is terrifying. They are scared and they are brave, ready to defend their country, speak up for human rights and document human rights violations. We are one world. And so when our partners are sheltering in basements and subway stations, fleeing to safety or taking up arms to defend their country, we must stand together with them in solidarity. You may wonder what we at The Advocates are doing to support Ukraine. We are talking to women to get on the ground information about war crimes and crimes against humanity. We will be sending the information straight from Ukraine to the International Criminal Court, where a prosecutor has opened an investigation into Ukraine. We are giving voice to the people of Ukraine and making sure their experiences and stories reach the prosecutor so he can build the strongest case possible. This is an example of our work in one country, and we are working with partners in many countries and on a global scale. So many of you know that we released our Backlash to Human Rights report. We documented how the far right is trying to roll back human rights for all. We know that there is an internationally networked, highly organized and well-funded movement designed to hurt people in the US and around the world. We interviewed activists to document the far right's movement to roll back human rights. One of their targets is protection against domestic abuse. For example, Belarus tried to adopt a new law on domestic violence, but its president vetoed the law in 2018, calling it Western rubbish. We have learned that this backlash, it's not an isolated incident, but it's part of a global and a sophisticated network of actors. We see their effects happening in other countries and right here in the US. They are interconnected. Remember 2012? the marriage amendment that would have defined marriage as between a man and a woman and banned same-sex marriage? This was not an isolated effort nor unique to the US. We saw this exact same referendum play out in countries like Armenia, Croatia, and Romania. The far-right tactics that we saw then and continue to see here are being replicated around the world. There is one big difference. Countries like Armenia and Croatia don't have the same well-resourced response we had here in the US. You may recall the Love is Love campaign that changed hearts and minds across Minnesota and the US. Many groups worked together to develop and execute that campaign. And when we don't share our experiences and resources, places like Croatia lose, where same-sex marriage is now outlawed. This is just one example of the far right's tactic to harm a group of people. But the far right is doing much more to strike collectively at the rights of women, immigrants, and children on a global scale. And it's succeeding. It takes all of us to fight back. If we want to protect the human rights of vulnerable <laughs> populations, including women, LGBTI persons, immigrants, and children that are under attack, we need to recognize, understand, and counter the far right's efforts to undermine human rights.
we need to share successful strategies and work collaboratively across borders and around the world. So let me go back to some photos for a moment here. And I wanna give you an example of how we are doing that. When I was in Ukraine at the feminist intensive camp, I shared messaging strategies that we are using here in the US. And I think you all recognize this meaning. Now, as an expression of solidarity, I gave my pussy hat to our partner, Marta, in Ukraine. And since then, Marta has been wearing that pussy hat at every protest and march in the streets of Ukraine. This is how we support our partners. We share our strategies and sometimes our hats. Together, we learn what works to fight this war that we are all fighting, the war against the far right. We are leveraging volunteers and supporters like you to support human rights activists in countries around the world. I wanna visit one last picture, Yulia. Yulia was 16 years old when Ukraine was invaded in 2014. She and her mom took trains to get to safety and on Constitution Day, they arrived. And she remembers everything was covered with flags and people wore embroidered shirts, which is the traditional Ukrainian attire. I quickly put on my own and we went for a walk. I wanted to hug every flag. Before or after, I have never felt such love for state symbols. This is what we do. We give voice to people like Yulia and make sure their stories count. Make sure their stories create change because in the end, we are one world. We are one people. We are the advocates for human rights. Thank you. Yeah, a little round of applause on that. Thank you, Rosalind. So I think, um, I think we've pretty well demonstrated that at The Advocates, we work broadly and we work deeply with our partners all over the planet. And it takes a lot of dedication from the staff and also volunteers uh, and folks like you that are just looking to, in, to learn and be more aware of what's going on in the world. It takes a lot of resources to do all that. It takes a lot of resources to help women tell their stories, to gain asylum, to protect women from violence, to advocate for better laws and to hold perpetrators of human rights uh, violations accountable and to pressure governments to protect the human rights of all people. And it's up to all of us, really. We're part of a global community, and that also means that we're all responsible for being global advocates to advance advocacy against human rights violations. Well, thanks for coming, everybody. Hope you, uh, I don't want to say had a good time, but <laughs> hope you enjoyed our time together. Yes, how's that? How's that? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Advocast. If you're interested in learning more about The Advocates and how we advocate for women and girls around the world, visit our website at theadvocatesforhumanrights.org. Want to know more about the women activists we covered in this episode? Check out our social media accounts and blog page where we featured many of their stories. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and sharing the episode with your friends. It really helps us out. Once again, thanks for listening.